This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hurricane Harvey left many sections of Houston and the towns up and down the Texas coastline severely damaged due to the storm and the wind and the repeated turns of the storm both on and off the coastline. But there's also another factor to be considered playing a role. You almost uh, you also have to consider the urban sprawl that has occurred there as well as out in California where they are fighting a variety of uh, of fires out there. And then also you have this uh, impacting Florida with Hurricane Irma as well. Billy Fleming is a research coordinator at the McHarg Center in the School of Design here at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also completing his Ph.D. in city and regional planning, and he joins us here in the studio to discuss this. Nice to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Uh, I guess let's start with Houston, because uh, I was in Houston probably a decade ago, and at that point, they were in the process of an, uh, maybe it was about 15 years ago, they were in the process of an unbelievable rebuild of the the city uh, highway mm-hmm. uh, infrastructure, mm-hmm. and everything was concrete, and seemingly a lot of things are concrete down in Houston, and it's one of the things we've talked about as as playing a role. I mean, when you're putting in that much concrete, you don't have as much flow when you do have rain. I mean, it's it, it's not something that was talked about a lot with Houston, but it's something that plays a role. Exactly. I mean, you know, in the case of Houston, that's one of the world's most predictable disasters, right? When uh, a storm like this comes through and you've spent the better part of 20 years uh, building highways and roads and low-density development uh, to become one of the world's geographically largest cities, uh, you know, there's nowhere for that water to go. And the primary outlet, you know, for Houston when all that stormwater hits, whether it's from a storm like Harvey or whether it's from, you know, just a spring or summer shower, is to eventually get into Galveston Bay. And when a storm like Harvey comes in and pushes a little bit of surge, but not much into that bay, it pretty much closes off its only real outlet. And without all the natural systems that were there before the highways were built, with all, all without all of those sort of green systems that have been replaced by strip malls and tract housing, um, that water didn't have anywhere to go. And, uh, and then you also have the variety of houses that were behind those two reservoirs as well. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, why you put houses there, I mean, even on the off chance, and obviously this was the off chance, yeah. that, that you have the, 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 the reservoirs going over the over the limit, that water's going to end up in people's yards. Yeah, and, you know, flooding is not a new phenomenon in Houston. Uh, the unfortunate, you know, part of all of this is that you know, Houston gets held up by a lot of folks uh, as sort of like the model of what a deregulated land market can look like, yeah. of, of how, how to become an affordable city in an otherwise like unaffordable environment for most folks in the U.S. And there's a lot that you can say about that that's good. But uh, the reality in a place like Houston is that the most vulnerable places, those places along the edge of the reservoir, along the coast, the places that are going to flood no matter what, um, that's where we shuffle all of our lowest-income families. Uh, they move into the cheapest homes we can provide, and we kind of yeah. tell them they're on their own after that. You talk about regulation mm-hmm. and, and also zoning, which yep. obviously ends up being a, a part of the Houston story a, as well. Uh, and the fact that most likely not enough was done in these areas to really protect the city and protect its people. Obviously, you, you want to see a variety of buildup because economically it does well for a city, but you can also go too far with that as well. Exactly. I mean, there are all kinds of other models where growth can be channeled in smart ways across the city, uh, even at the most like simple level of not shuffling a bunch of your most vulnerable residents into the places that are the most likely to flood. Yeah. Uh, That's not a particularly heavy handed set of regulations to say, like, we know this place will flood. 
Uh, we don't want to build here. Where else can we put folks and keep housing prices affordable? Lots of other cities have figured out how to do it. Houston knows how to do it. They've just made a political choice not to. Is it your expectation, though, that because of how severe this storm was and, and the fact that you know, you're going to have people affected by this well into next year, if sure. not the year after, yep. that we will see a move by Houstonians to try and impact the regulation and the zoning laws and, and and change some of these things. Not that you can, well, some of those houses, though, that are behind those reservoirs probably would get torn down anyway. Right. It's whether or not you rebuild them. Yeah, I think there are, there are a couple of things you can set your watch to after a disaster, right? One of those is that somebody, either a mayor or a governor or whoever, is going to stand up and say, you know, Houston is stronger than the storm. We can figure yeah. out how to do this. <laughs> right. And the reality of that, one, is that, you know, no city or person is stronger than a hurricane. And it's if you look at the, the case of New Jersey after Sandy and all the trouble they're in now, uh, Chris Christie was the first one to stand up and say that. Uh, my hope is that Houston and Texas don't go down that route. And the other is that they're going to start trying to to push through a recovery process before all the folks who have been hit by Harvey are able to come back and partake in it. And whatever vision for Houston's future is put together, uh, if it's not co-produced by the people who live there, if it's if it's put together by a group of experts who, you know, can tell you the best way to engineer the city, but don't mm-hmm. know anything about the folks who live there, it's not going to matter what they come up with. It'll never get built. And if it does, it won't be shared by the people who live there now. But did part of that, that part of the story play out with Katrina and the people in New Orleans? Absolutely. So New Orleans gets held, gets held up a lot as a, you know, an exemplar of post-disaster recovery. Um, but if you look at who was able to come back after Katrina, it wasn't the folks who lived there before, especially on the low and middle income side. Yeah. Uh, Houston, or excuse me, New Orleans has gotten richer and whiter uh, since Katrina, and Houston remains one of our country's uh, most diverse and, for me, most interesting cities. And it would be a shame to see the same process unfold there. Uh, Irma, obviously, a lot of people are, you know saw the video uh, over this weekend of of the storm pulling through there. It was interesting. I saw a, a comparison in the newspaper this morning of what one section, I think it was Fort Lauderdale, looked like in 1925 and what it looks like today. And back in 1925, it was like one building and the rest was was land, was beach. Obviously, you're not you don't have that uh, the case. You have so many different factors when you're thinking about Florida right now, because you have all the buildup that they've had Mm -hmm. and you have the potential concern of rising sea level. Uh, and and a variety of other factors that just make it, it, it's going to be a a scary thing to watch with Florida over the next 40 to 50 years. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of these places, uh, if you think about the way that like a building on a campus like this is maintained, you have a thing called deferred maintenance, right? Where you're not putting money into the building every year, you're kind of putting it in a set aside to invest when the roof caves in or a window goes out or an HVAC needs to be replaced. And in cities like Miami and Fort Lauderdale and Tampa, Um, you know, for a long time, that deferred maintenance fund hasn't been capitalized. So there hasn't been money put aside to deal with the reality of climate change uh, and with sea level rise. And that bill has come due for a lot of those cities now. And I think the the question before us now is if we're going to learn from these events and build back our cities better, um, or if we're going to sort of go on with the business as usual approach of just developing it along the coast without any regard for when the ocean and the seas are going to come in. Uh, unfortunately, it took Hurricane Andrew to really kind of set uh, this part of motion. But after Andrew, yeah. uh, Florida really changed their standards of building yeah. uh, buildings in that, you know, to make them more able to survive storms like that. So I guess to a degree, there is, even though you have the buildup, at least you are thinking partly, you know, what we have to do to prevent 
significant damage in the future from a, from a, from a, a, a next storm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and the building code, you know, reform that went on in South Florida and has gone on in parts of Texas after storms like that has been important. But it's also, uh, you know, the intervention that takes the longest time to have an effect because you can rebuild the the buildings that were, you know, completely devastated by the storm. But a lot of those places that are newly vulnerable now as sea level rise and, you know, sea, uh, seashore subsidence has sort of put new properties at risk. Mm-hmm weren't grandfathered in, right? Like they weren't built with those building codes of the same construction that was used in 90 or 89 when they were built. Um, and you can't go in and retrofit those buildings to meet that new building code. So one of the things they're going to have to think about is what kind of new infrastructure they're going to have to complement those new building codes in these places. It's not just about making buildings stronger. It's about, you know, armoring yourself against the inevitable push of the ocean. What about out in California where they've been going through another bout with wildfires mm-hmm. uh, in, in the last couple of months? And, and the build out we see more and more in the hills around L.A. and mm-hmm. Hollywood and, you know, all of those areas around there. More and more houses up there on sides of hills. Not only does that impact the, the this, you know, when you're talking about having storms, but the, the fires, but, you know, slides as well yeah. out there. Yeah, I mean, again, this is this is mostly a question of of a failure of government or a failure of you know local and state actors to to think about the suitability of the land that they're encouraging development on. Um, there are ways to solve problems like these that are you know heavy-handed regulatory approaches, and there are market-based approaches to them. Um, some of these places have chosen not to opt out for, or not to opt into either path, and this is the result. Uh, you have a lot. You have a huge landscape that's been. Uh, filled with low-density development. It's disrupted the ecosystem services that used to help buffer some of those places from wildfires. Yeah. Um, and when you get a you know, severe drought like California's been dealing with for the last few months, this is this is the result. What is the expectation, though, that uh, of where we need to go to, to, to make our cities and make our representatives more aware of some of these problems so that we don't have some of the issues that we see in California, in Florida, in, in Texas? Uh, because you're seeing, you know, the, the buildup of properties all over the country. Yeah. I mean, even in places like Montana, North Dakota, you see it starting to happen there. Yeah. I mean, part of this is that we have to change the conversation about climate change from one about whether or not science is a real thing or like a long con yeah. and talk about, you know, the adaptation to climate change as an issue of national security. I can't right. think of a yeah. better test case for that than Houston, Texas, where 90 percent of all of our military grade jet fuel is refined where two-thirds of all of our fuel either is refined, stored, processed, or shipped out to market, where four of the ten largest ports in the country reside. Uh, when Houston is shut down for a storm like this, our entire national GDP loses percentage points by the week. Um, and California is no different. It's our, it's our second largest economy, or it's our largest economy. Um, those pla- when those places are stressed by events like this, the entire country suffers. But the politics of, of Texas probably doesn't play for that conversation being brought forward in a quickest fashion as probably it might need to be. Yeah, but people would have said the same thing about Florida in the 90s. And Miami's okay. mayor, you know, is a Republican mayor and is, you know, by all accounts, uh, you know, a, a, a member and well standing in that party. And, and he's one of the he's been one of the the sort of thought leaders and most vocal advocates for climate change adaptation in the country because it's a necessity for Miami. You can't live there and not acknowledge that it's coming. It's a little easier in Texas where if you go to Austin or the state house, you know, members of their legislature will tell you it's a coast with a state, not a coastal state. <laughs> right. uh, we all know right. that's not true. Right. Texas has one of the longest coastlines in the country. Uh, and if they don't find a way to deal with it, they're they're going to keep finding events like Harvey at their front door. But even with Texas, uh, and again, just as you kind of suggested, Austin is uh, at times a little disconnected from the coastline, yeah. whereas with the state of Florida, 
you it's can't escape it. Right. It's 100 miles, pretty yeah. much, you know, border side to side. Yeah. So you cannot escape it. Yeah. I mean, it's like I said, it's a little easier in Texas to, to sort of think of yourself as a state with a coast instead of being a coastal state. But I mean, this this should be the moment that their land commissioner, uh, George P. Bush, says, like, I'm I'm going to accept that the coastal management responsibilities of being Texas's land commissioner are serious. And that if I don't get serious about them, that Texas is going to find itself at risk of future disasters like this for the for the foreseeable future. And there's only going to be one person to blame uh, if they don't get serious about it. And it'll be him. Isn't this, though? I mean, it's all part of a bigger discussion in general about city planning and and how you lay out a city and 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 what pieces you want to have with it and infrastructure and and transit and 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 we're seemingly i mean one of the things we've seen at least in the northeast here has been uh, in the last decade and a half the big rebuild on uh, i-95 the new jersey turnpike all the Mm -hmm. way from you know basically here in philadelphia going up uh you know, uh, almost to Boston. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a major highway. Uh, but we need to see more of the better planning in general so that we, we don't have the issues that, that we've been seeing recently. Right. And again, going, this is about thinking about infrastructure and climate change adaptation as investments, right? So that when you put money into infrastructure that protects the coast, it's not just about Houston, the city. It's not just about Miami, the city. It's about the whole state. It's about everybody who depends on that city for either getting their goods, uh, whether they're going to Walmart or wherever to pick up their food that week, or whether or not they're a farmer out in West Texas or in the panhandle of Florida trying to get their goods to market out through an international port. Um, And there are lots of different ways to think about infrastructure, one of which is the conventional kind that the Army Corps builds, which are big walls, seawalls and levees and bulkheads that can protect some of these places from future storm events. And the other are to think about green infrastructure, all the different natural systems that once kept a lot of these places, if not safe, then safer from storms like Harvey. Right. And investing in those the way we invest in all of the big structural pieces. And the investment in in some of these is fairly modest when you think about – the the uh, the negative impact on the uh, on the back end if if you don't have them in place yeah I mean the payoff on all of these things is extraordinarily high for every dollar you put into conservation or construction of new green or natural infrastructure you get seven dollars back right um, and for gray infrastructure for the big walls and levees too like I mean those things don't get built unless they pass a very stringent national economic benefit test by the Army Corps it's just a matter of giving them the funds they need to do all the projects that are out there on their list if you look at you know, New York and sort of the Northeast region after Sandy, that was a place that had about a thousand projects on its list already queued up that should have been built before Sandy. It has about another thousand now after Sandy. And they're not building them because they don't have the money to do it. 844-942-7866 is the number if you'd like to join in. We're joined in studio by Billy Fleming, who's in the School of Design here at the University of Pennsylvania. 844-942-7866 is the number. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I think part of, of the discussion also needs to be is the fact that, obviously, when you're here in Philadelphia or D.C. or New York, you have so much that is kind of in this region and it, and, it, and it really a lot of the resources need to go here but you still have some of these issues that are happening in places like montana in north dakota wyoming where and yeah. you know you you can't pass on one to get to the other that's exactly right and look i grew up in rural arkansas so for me like climate change is not a thing that was part of my like childhood <laughs> science education right. but if you go to the farms i was just back in arkansas last week if you go to the farmers and you go to the folks who live like in rural states like arkansas and montana and wyoming they know that climate change is real they know it's happening because they're seeing it in the way they're having to manage their fields and their crops uh and 
you may not be able to go in there and talk about it the way you talk about it in New York or Philly or D.C., but those folks are as open to solving this problem as anybody else in the country. It's a matter of somebody stepping up at a state or a national level and being willing to have a hard conversation about investing in our in our future security. And that can mean everything from the national security issue in Houston to a few secure to a food security issue in the farm belt. 844-942-7866. Or again, if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. How much do you think, I mean, California the last decade or so, with all the drought that they've had to deal mm-hmm. with, the the amount that they have had to spend <laughs> because of the drought and because of the wildfires has to be a staggering amount and how the economy of California could probably be different if probably some basic changes were made in terms of their thought process on this. Yeah, I mean, California is going to have to come, they're going to have to find a way to talk about whether or not some of the crops that are grown there belong in California, or if they belong in a place like the Mississippi River Delta, where rainfall is much higher, where land is a lot cheaper, and where it's easier to manage uh, a problem like they're having now with their drought, where droughts, frankly, don't exist in the way that they exist in California. Yeah. What is, your, what is your expectation, though, that we need to have? Uh, I mean, can we get to a point where at the national level, and it may not happen in, in the in the immediate future, but to have that discussion? And pre- President Obama seemingly wanted to b- bring that discussion forward. Uh, can we get get to that point, you know, in the near – not can we. We need to get to that point. Yeah, I mean, we're at the point now where, where the bill is coming due for all of these problems that we've put off for so long. And, and President Obama does deserve some credit for that, right? I mean, he brought – you know, a carbon tax bill before the House and the Senate it came within a couple of votes of coming to his desk to sign into law. Uh, whether or not a carbon tax is the right answer is like that's the debate we should be having, right? Mm-hmm. What's the right response to climate change? What's the level of investment we need to make and are willing to make as a country? Not whether or not, you know, the IPCC or, you know, a couple marine scientists along the Gulf Coast have been engaged in a 20-year long con to make us think that climate change is a, you know, a fraudulent or a hoax idea. But in order to get this, you're probably going to need uh, the business community to be able to step in and, and, and make some of these decisions as well. Right. Well, if you go so that if you go to Houston, you go to the Galveston Bay area where all of these refineries and port facilities exist. They know it's real because they've they've their actuaries are, are much smarter than than me and most of the other folks in my field. And they recognize that, you know, to them, the risks posed by climate change and storms and sea level rise are real and that the potential losses for them are astronomical. So they've built up levees and seawalls around their individual facilities yeah. because they know storms like Harvey are coming. Um, it's up to cities now to be led, hopefully, by strong mayors and governors and some other president who's willing to talk about this issue. Um, you know, to get people galvanized around the idea of investing in the kind of infrastructure we need to be to live in the 21st century. Most of the stuff that that's under our streets and conveys all of our stormwater and all of our floodwaters now was built in the late 18th and early 19th century. I mean, yeah. if you go down, you go to my neighborhood in Philly right now, oh. uh, every other week there's a collapse of an old truss that somebody's got to dig out. And it, you go in there and look and it's made out of wood that's been chewed through by termites. Yeah. I go back about five or six years here in the city of Philadelphia and we went through a summer where I think every week there was one big main that was broken. Yeah. And you had a massive flood going down some city street. Yep. And all of that infrastructure, as you said, is probably put in in the 1800s. Yeah. And, and it, it's it's a problem that we have in this country. Uh, you can pick the city. It yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. And, no, and the thing is, no city and probably most states can handle that problem themselves, right? The right. cost of replacing the stormwater infrastructure in a city like Philadelphia is in the 
like nine, 10, 11 figure range. Yeah. And if you put that across yeah. all the major cities and even the smaller and medium sized cities in this country, we're talking about, you know, a multi-generational, multi-trillion dollar problem that has to be solved. And we can get there. Like I, I have no, I have no lack of faith in you know the ability of this country to get there. We just need someone to step up and lead at the national level, who who holds a ele- high elected office and is willing to be the one to put themselves out there on an issue that everyone knows is important, and that is often fought over in order to win elections. Great having you here. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having. Greatly me. appreciate it. Billy Fleming uh, from the School of Design here at the University of Pennsylvania. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.